Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3. John 3, we're doing a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John, and as we continue in our study of this book, we come to John 3, verse 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7 uh, this morning with the time that we have, and the title of the message is The Necessary Second Birth, The Necessary Second uh, Birth. I know of no greater natural wonder than the wonder of childbirth, and I know many of you would agree with that. I was by my wife's side when she delivered all four of our uh, children, except for one occasion when I started to pass out and they had to take me out of the room. Um, But I never ceased to wonder at the miracle of childbirth along with the extremes of emotion that my wife and I would experience in the span of a few hours and sometimes in the span of a few seconds. For me, sometimes going from abject terror to joy, uh, from waves of anxiety to feeling as if my heart would explode uh, with love for my wife and for the new child that God had given to us When my wife was pregnant with our oldest daughter, Brooke, um, I had uh, trouble emotionally connecting to Brooke when she was in Donna's uh, womb. I couldn't connect with her the way that my wife could uh, because I couldn't see her and I couldn't feel her inside me like uh, Donna could. But when our daughter was being born, I distinctly recall just seeing the very top portion of her head as she was coming out. And just in an instant, I felt as if my heart had leaped out of my chest and wrapped itself around her. And I knew that I would be forever vulnerable to her every joy and her every sorrow. Uh, When our oldest son, Brendan, was born, uh, there were some complications with his uh, delivery. Uh, He was a big boy at nine pounds and six ounces, and uh, his shoulders got stuck in the birth canal uh, as he was being born, and the nurses could not get him all the way uh, out. His head was out, but he would not budge beyond uh, that point, and uh, I could see him, and I could see Uh, Not only that he was stuck, but that the umbilical cord was around his neck, and I could see a place where the cord was tied in a knot. Um, So um, I was freaking out, but the nurses initially seemed calm, and that helped me to stay calm as long as they were calm. But as time went on and they could not budge uh, him, the nurses actually started to panic Uh, And as soon as I noticed their panic, uh, that's when I started to pass out. Um, And a nurse walked me out of the room and gave me a free orange juice. Um, So I got something out of that. But but after a couple minutes of sipping on that orange juice, I recovered enough to come back into the room in time to see our son uh, being delivered. And they had to resuscitate him. Uh, when he was delivered, but eventually uh, everything worked out uh, okay. And so my wife and I were 
rejoicing in the Lord. Uh, I uh, held myself together uh, for the next few hours while I was at the hospital. Uh, But when I got home uh, later that day, I just remember uh, all the emotions of the day catching up to me, and I just collapsed on our bed, and I just sobbed, uh, giving vent to the emotions uh, of the day. Um, As many of you know, the the miracle um, of childbirth, there's absolutely nothing like it. But as wonderful as the wonder of childbirth is, natural childbirth, it is nowhere near the miracle that we're going to be talking about today, and that is the miracle of the second birth. Being naturally born, as you all know, is not enough to get somebody into the kingdom of God, but the second birth is so powerful that 100% of those who have received this second birth will make it into the kingdom of God. And this is the birth that every godly parent longs for, for each of her children and his children more than anything else. In our passage this morning, a man named Nicodemus is going to come to Jesus, and he's going to introduce a topic of conversation, and we're going to observe how Jesus completely uh, changes the topic and brings up the topic of being born again. And the impression you get from this text is that if you have not been born again, and you come to Jesus in order to talk to him about some other topic, the likelihood is that he just might ignore what you came to him to talk to him about and bring up the fact that you need to be born again. And he would talk to you earnestly about that. As you read through the passage here in John 3 up through verse 11, you'll notice that when speaking about the new birth, Jesus three times says, truly, Truly, He says that in verse 3, in verse 5, and in verse 11. When Jesus speaks on any topic at all, you can know that it is important, right? But when he says truly, truly, three times when speaking on a single topic, you can feel safe in putting that topic at the top of the list of important things that you need to give attention to. And indeed, there is no question more important than the question, have you been born again? There's no more important question to ask about anyone else in your life than the question, have they been born again? And there's no question more important that you can ask about your children than the question, has my child been born again? And this morning, we're going to be learning three truths about this matter of being born again as Jesus engages in a conversation with this man whose name is Nicodemus. Now, before we get to that, let me take a moment, let's all take a moment to notice how Nicodemus makes his appearance from the crowd of those who were believing in Jesus on some level at the end of chapter 2. 
And I think you'll see the connection here. In John 2, starting in verse 23, observe what the text says. Now, when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, and you can underline that word man, for he himself knew what was in man, and you can underline that word man. Chapter 3, verse 1, now there was a man, same word, of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. So out of this mass of quasi-believers in Jesus, whom Jesus can see right into their hearts and know all about them, the spotlight zeroes in on Nicodemus, an amazing man who comes to Jesus with some pretty high credentials. Observe how John describes him in verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So we learn here first that Nicodemus was a Pharisee, meaning that this is a deeply religious man who was a devoted student of the Bible. The fact that he was a Pharisee tells us that he had made a public pledge in front of witnesses to abide by every commandment in the law of God, all the way down to the smallest minutia of God's 613 commandments in the law. One commentator says, if you had a Pharisee, if you lived back in this day in Israel and you had a Pharisee for a kid, you would have been thrilled. You would have hit the spiritual jackpot for such a child of yours would be serious about obedience to God's law. That's Nicodemus. Second, as John states here in verse 1, Nicodemus was what John calls a ruler of the Jews, meaning that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the highest-ranking authoritative body within Judaism. The Sanhedrin was essentially the Supreme Court of Israel and had jurisdiction literally over every Jew on earth at this time. A Jew of this day could not climb any higher on the social and religious ladder than what Nicodemus has attained to. His mom must have been so proud of him. Third, we learn from verse 10 that Nicodemus was one of the top teachers in Israel. And we know, obviously, there were many teachers in Israel, but in verse 10, Jesus will describe Nicodemus literally in the Greek as the teacher in Israel, indicating that he was a teacher of teachers, the consummate teacher of all things religious and spiritual in Israel. So these are very high credentials. And on top of all the amazing credentials that we've just looked at, Nicodemus also had a very high opinion of Jesus. For in verse 2, John says, look at the text. 
This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So we learn here that Nicodemus respects Jesus enough to call him rabbi, which is a title in this day of great respect, wherein Nicodemus is recognizing Jesus as a legitimate teacher worthy of this title that literally means great one. More than this, Nicodemus confesses that Jesus is one who has come from God as a teacher. He also believes that God was with Jesus in a special way, and he believed that the miracles that Jesus was doing were empowered by God and were a valid demonstration of the fact that God was with Jesus in a special way. In fact, to his credit, Nicodemus believes these things about Jesus so strongly that he seeks Jesus out and he finds him. He comes to Jesus and confesses to Jesus his beliefs about him. Some writers assume the worst about Nicodemus' motive for coming to Jesus by night, suggesting that he came to Jesus by night because he was afraid to be seen uh, with Jesus. Uh, This may be true, but John does not tell us this, nor does Jesus rebuke Nicodemus for coming at night. It's just as likely that Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night because the evening hours would have provided greater opportunity for a more extended dialogue with Jesus. Whatever his motive, what we know for sure is that Nicodemus actually came to Jesus on a particular evening and confessed to Jesus the truth of what he had come to know thus far about Jesus. So this is a good thing, right, that Nicodemus is doing. And it leaves us thinking at this point of the text, what is not to love about Nicodemus? If anyone is on his way to heaven, we would think surely Nicodemus is. And yet we're going to see in our passage today that Jesus is going to look at Nicodemus and say to him, there's something that you lack And until you get that thing that you lack, you can't get into the kingdom of God. And what you lack is that you have not been born again. So evidently, memorizing scripture and seeking to obey God's laws, being a highly esteemed teacher of the Bible, and even having a high opinion of Jesus are not enough to get you into the kingdom. Something needs to happen to you. And in our passage today, Jesus tells us what that is, that you need to be born again. And so as we look at the text from this point forward, we're going to observe uh, three truths that Jesus teaches Nicodemus and us regarding this matter of being born again. Three truths that Jesus teaches Nicodemus and us regarding this matter of being born again. 
Number one, let's word it this way, without being born again, one cannot see the kingdom of God. Without being born again, one cannot see the kingdom of God. Observe what Jesus does in verse 3. Jesus answered and said to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And I would encourage you to underline the verb see there in verse 3. At least in part, Jesus is telling Nicodemus that the kingdom of God is something that needs to be seen. And being born again gives a person the ability to see the kingdom of God and to see it as it ought to be seen, to see that it exists, and to see it as the desirable and beautiful thing that it is, to see it as good. At the apex of every kingdom is what? A king. And the same is true for the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ is God's anointed Messiah King in the kingdom of God. And at the beginning of his ministry, we know from the other gospels that Jesus is going around telling people that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, but most people couldn't see it for what it really was. And if they could, they didn't want it. And a part of what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus here is that a person must be born again in order to see Christ as the Messiah King and to see his kingdom and his kingly rule as it ought to be seen as something that one should desire to be a part of. Man in his natural state does not want the kingdom of God. This is why in Psalm 2, the nation's are said to rage and devise strategies for freeing themselves from the rule of God and from his Messiah. In fact, in Psalm 2, the psalmist says in verses 2 and 3, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Messiah. And they say, let us tear their fetters, their chains apart, and cast away their cords from us. The rulers spoken about in this psalm do not view the kingship of the Messiah as a good thing. In fact, they view living under his rule as slavery. And they want to free themselves from the fetters of such bondage. Or at least that's how they view it. When he was alive, uh, Christopher Hitchens viewed living under the rule of God as similar to living in North Korea, believe it or not. Living in North Korea for all eternity. And he likened God to the dictator of North Korea, and he said, why would anyone want that? Hitchens' way of viewing the kingdom of God is as old as Psalm 2. And at least he was honest about it. The truth is that this is the way everyone views living under the rule of Christ in the kingdom of God until they've been born again and can see 
the rule of Christ and the kingdom of God for the desirable thing that it is. Another thing that Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is this, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God when it comes into its own in a future day. In that future day, the kingdom of God is going to be a glorious thing to behold, especially from the inside. And Jesus is saying here to Nicodemus that those who are born again will be able to see the kingdom of God in its fullness when it arrives, but those who have not been born again will not see the kingdom of God. Now, before we move on, let's take a moment to appreciate what a stunning thing is this is for Nicodemus to hear from Jesus. Nicodemus would have grown up as a Jew, thinking that by virtue of his physical birth as a Jew, He and all of his fellow Jews are automatically destined for the kingdom of God when it comes into its own. Their theology told them that every Jew, every Israelite, is in the kingdom of God unless they are guilty of some sort of apostasy or extreme wickedness that would disqualify them. So they're in, but that position in the kingdom of God is theirs to lose So if Jesus, on this occasion, had said to Nicodemus that a Gentile had to be born again to enter into the kingdom of God, Nicodemus would have had zero trouble with that. The ancient rabbis actually used the language of new birth to speak of a Gentile proselyte converting to Judaism And even describing the new convert to Judaism as being like a newborn child. So they use that kind of language to speak of a Gentile converting to Judaism and becoming a Jew. But here Jesus is saying that all people, even Jews like Nicodemus, need to be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. And this had to have hit Nicodemus like a body blow. And we'll see that evidence very clearly in the coming verses. But even though Jesus no doubt is perceiving this from the look on Nicodemus's face, he doesn't let up at all, which brings us to the second truth that Jesus teaches Nicodemus and us regarding this matter of being born again. Number two, let's word it this way, without being born again, one cannot enter the kingdom of God. Without being born again, one cannot enter the kingdom of God. Observe what happens in verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Nicodemus is asking two questions here, and both of them are logistical questions. His first question is, how can a man be born when he is old? And this is Nicodemus expressing worry in connection with himself as a grown man who is getting on in years. Commentators suggest that Nicodemus is likely using the physical metaphor of birth to convey a deeper meaning, just like he knows Jesus is. 
And he's basically saying, how can a man who has grown up and set in his ways be expected to change his nature and start all over again? Nicodemus' next question in verse 4 is a mechanical question. When Nicodemus says, he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? In the mind of Nicodemus, the only womb from which a person could be born again is the womb of his original mother, and Nicodemus rightly sees that as an utter impossibility. Now, it's easy for us to read these questions from Nicodemus and to shake our heads, like, man, what foolish questions. Uh, But we probably shouldn't be so arrogant as if we're smarter than Nicodemus. As Chuck Swindoll says, don't forget, this is no idiot sitting across from Jesus. This is a brilliant theologian, a remarkably astute theological mind, and he doesn't get it. And the only reason you and I get it is because God has reached down and opened our eyes and done a miracle of rebirth in us to help us to understand it. And these are not casual questions that are being asked by Nicodemus here in verse 4. These are despairing questions that are being asked by a man who doesn't know the first thing about how to get himself born again. He seems to believe Jesus when Jesus says that a man needs to be born again in order to see and uh, the kingdom of God. His problem is that he doesn't know how to do this, and that frustrates him. All his life, Nicodemus has felt confident in his own abilities to execute any responsibility that he's given as a Pharisee. He memorized all of God's 613 commandments in the law and thought to himself, if I work hard enough, I can do all of these. Nicodemus had never met a command that he did not feel able to perform. But here Jesus is putting before him something that Nicodemus can't even begin to fathom how to execute. It seems that for the first time in his life, Nicodemus is beginning to confront his spiritual poverty. He hears Jesus say, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And now Nicodemus is left in a panic. So he asks Jesus the questions of verse 4, wondering, well, what do I do to make this happen? He can't fathom how to execute what Jesus is talking about. So observe Jesus' answer in verses 5 and 6. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. I love what Jesus is doing here. In verse 4, Nicodemus is asking two logistical questions about how a person can be born again. And Jesus ignores his questions. 
and simply restates the urgent requirement that one be born again. This time saying, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, you'll note that expression, born of water and the Spirit, um, there's a lot of ink that has been spilt over what Jesus means when he says born of water. Uh, commentators have various suggestions regarding how to understand uh, what Jesus may be referring to when he speaks of being born of water and the Spirit. Uh, so we probably should take just a couple minutes with this. Leon Morris, the commentator, suggests that we put the two words, water and spirit, together and translate Jesus as saying, unless one is born of spiritual water, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That's one approach, and it's actually worth thinking about. Understood in this way, uh, we would then understand Jesus to be keying off of our understanding of physical birth, a child in the womb of his mother is living inside a sack of fluid or water, as it were, which breaks before a child's birth. As we say, the woman's water breaks, and ultimately that child comes forth from that water. And with this understanding, if this is the right understanding, Jesus is saying just as a child is physically born out of water, so a person must be born out of the spiritual equivalent of that water, which is the Spirit, in order to be able to enter the kingdom of God. The argument for this point of view might be found in the next two occasions where Jesus speaks of this new birth, where he drops the word water uh, later in verse 6 and in verse 8, and just simply speaks of being born of the Spirit. So whatever he means by being born of water and the Spirit, what he really means is being born of the Spirit, as we see in verses 6 and 8. Beyond that, it's probably worth noting that we've already seen water and the Spirit connected together in John's Gospel. Uh, and that is in John chapter 1, and you can write down John 1.26 and John 1.33, where John the Baptist speaks of his own baptism in water, which represented repentance and cleansing from sin, but then points to Jesus as the one who doesn't so much baptize in water, but in the Holy Spirit, he says in John 1.33. So we see water and the Spirit in connection with one another, uh, even in John 1. And tied to that, we can go even farther back to Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 28, where God speaks to the Israelites, and he says to them, and I want you to notice the connection between water and the Spirit in Ezekiel 36, 25 through 28, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. 
I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes And you will be careful to observe my ordinances, and you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people, and I will be your God. So just from this passage, we see that God is speaking of a coming day when he will cleanse the Jews with water And give them a new spirit and place his spirit within them with the result that they will truly be his people. And perhaps here in John 3, Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, unless you are reborn in this way, experiencing this cleansing and renewal through the Holy Spirit, one cannot enter the kingdom of God. However you understand Jesus' words here, what's absolutely clear from verse 5 is this. Unless a person experiences this spiritual rebirth, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And that's Jesus talking. In verse 3, Jesus speaks of the need to be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. But here he speaks of the need to be born again in order to enter the kingdom of God, teaching us that the kingdom of God is not something that we are merely to see, but something that we are to enter. And Jesus is saying that in order to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. Such language teaches us that there are people who are presently outside of the kingdom of God, and God desires to bring them into his kingdom and the blessings of his kingdom to move them into kingdom blessings like forgiveness and justification, righteousness, relationship, freedom, and power with God, and ultimately the ability to be with him forever and to see his face. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus and to all of us, without being born again, you cannot enter into such things. Something must happen to you. The Spirit must bring you to life and cause you to be born again. Now, at this point of the narrative, and we'll know this from what Jesus is going to say next, Jesus is noticing that Nicodemus is both stunned and panicked by what Jesus is saying here. But rather than letting up, Jesus presses his point even further, and this time makes it even more personal. Which brings us to the third truth that Jesus teaches us regarding this matter of being born again. Number three, let's just say it this way, we all must be born again. We all must be born again. Every person on the planet, in order to get into the kingdom of God, must be born again. And that goes for me and for all of us. Observe what Jesus says in verses 6 and 7. 
He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed. Stop being amazed, he says to Nicodemus, that I said to you, you must be born again. And this is where Jesus gets personal with Nicodemus. Up to this point, he's been speaking in the third person, saying unless one is born again, he cannot see. Unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter. But now he gets personal with Nicodemus and with all of us when he says, you must be born again. We know he's speaking directly to Nicodemus about this need to be born again because he says you. And we know that he's speaking about all of Nicodemus's colleagues and all of us because he uses the plural you, essentially saying you all must be born again. Part of the reason is because like produces like. In verse 6, Jesus says, that which is born of the flesh is what? It's flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. When we were born the first time, we were born from a physical mom into a physical world. And we were born with the physical equipment to interact with this physical world. And likewise, to enter the kingdom of God, we must be born into it, we must be born with the spiritual faculties necessary to interact with the spiritual world of the kingdom of God, which means that we must be birthed from a spiritual womb. We must be born of the spirit, as Jesus is saying in this passage. What's clear from Jesus' words here is that no one just evolves from being a fleshly person into being a spiritual person. To be spiritual, you have to be born again of the Spirit. In verse 7, Jesus says to Nicodemus, Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. And I would encourage you to mark that word amazed. Jesus is seeing something about Nicodemus here that makes him say this to him. Nicodemus is clearly giving off a vibe that he's stunned by what Jesus has said. Jesus' earlier statements clearly imply that Nicodemus must be born again, and Nicodemus has rightly understood Jesus' words to mean this, and he's amazed in an offended and panicky sort of way. He's amazed that Jesus would think that he, Nicodemus, needs to be born again And he's panicked because this is the first thing he's ever been told in his life that he knows he cannot do. And Jesus, rather than backing down and easing off of Nicodemus, presses his point and states what he had already clearly implied, you must be born again. And notice his use of the word must there. Being born again is not optional. It is necessary. 
It's not one alternative amongst many ways to get into the kingdom of God. It is the only way. If you are not born again of the Spirit of God, you are spiritually blind. You will never see the kingdom of God, and you will never enter the kingdom of God. It's important for us also to note that the verb born is passive. So Jesus is not saying to Nicodemus, you must you must beget yourself. He's saying you must be begotten. In the physical realm, begetting is not something that a child does. No child brags about the day of his birth. It's not something the child does. Begetting is something that a parent does. When it came to your first birth from your biological mother, you had no control over your conception, nor over your birth. On the day of your birth, your mother's body went into labor and pushed you out. You didn't climb your way out. There was no skill involved on your part. You didn't even know what was going on. And the same is true of your second birth. We can't make ourselves be born again. Even when Nicodemus hears Jesus, he immediately is scrambling in his mind, thinking about, so what do I need to do to execute this? And, and he asks Jesus in verse 4, can a man re-enter his mother's womb and be born a second time? He's thinking about like what he needs to do to execute this, but he's missing the point. The new birth is not about what you do to make it happen. It's something that happens to you. And the Spirit of God is the one who does it. Now let's think about what Jesus is teaching here for a few minutes and, and ponder why this would fall so heavy on Nicodemus. If there ever was a loaded statement, it's this declaration that Jesus has made to Nicodemus saying, you must be born again. There are two deeply unsettling facts that are embodied in this declaration that are both sobering and devastating, which we all must grapple with. And the first fact is this, something is wrong with you after your first birth. So wrong with you that it disqualifies you from God's kingdom, right? You are not okay. If you were physically born and that's it, you are not okay. All is not well. Yes, you were born as a product of the handiwork of God and as an image bearer of God, but you were also born in sin that separates you from God. And no amount of good works that you might perform can ever overcome that deficiency that you were born with. Write down Psalm 51, verse 5. David says, Behold, I was born in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Imagine putting those words on a Mother's Day card. <laughs> I was born in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. David has just committed adultery and murdered a man and he's been living in deception for months. 
And what he's saying here is essentially this. In this truly awful season of my life, I have been behaving consistently with the sin condition I was born with. I have behaved according to my birth. He's looking at this sinful season of his life and he's saying, I was born this way. And that's the truth about all of us. We are born in sin. That's why no one ever had to teach us or to teach our children how to sin. It comes naturally. And this is part of the reason Jesus tells us that in order to get into the kingdom of God, we must have a second birth. It's so sad that the message of the world today is essentially look at the condition in which you were born and just be true to that. People think that if it can simply be shown that someone was born that way, then that somehow legitimizes the lifestyle choices that that person is making. But this is not the message of Christ. The message of Christianity is essentially this. Salvation is not found in being true to your first birth. Salvation is found in being born again through the agency of the Spirit of God and then being true to the one who brought about your second birth and then letting your second birth of the Spirit of God shape your destiny. Letting your second birth define your destiny, not your first birth. A second devastating fact that underlies what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is this. Nothing you've ever done or attained to from your first birth onward counts as anything before God. Nothing that you've done or attained to from your first birth onward counts as anything before God. As you can imagine, this is devastating news to Nicodemus. Imagine being a man as religious as Nicodemus is, having attained all the knowledge and the status and accomplishments and all the good deeds that he has done up to this point of his life. All the sacrifices he's made, the things he's done without as he sought to obey God's law. Imagine having done all that he has done, and instead of hearing Jesus look at all of that and say, great job, Nicodemus, you've done enough. You hear Jesus say, like he looks at all of that and says, here's what you need. You need to be born again. Imagine how those words would fall on you if you were Nicodemus. Had Jesus said to Nicodemus, you know what, all that you've done is great, but let me give you one more manageable thing that you should do to kind of put the cherry on top of all of that, and then you'll get into the kingdom of God. Nicodemus probably could have swallowed that pretty easily, but saying that he must be born again, that's basically telling Nicodemus that nothing that he's ever attained to, nothing he's ever done, nothing he's ever accomplished is worth anything in the way of getting him into the kingdom of God. How does a man like Nicodemus even begin to process that? 
Now think about it this way, like a, a person who's lived a horrible life of sin probably would not be so offended at Jesus' words at the notion of needing to be born again to get into the kingdom of God because such a person would know that everything I've done in my life disqualifies me from God's kingdom. But for a religious person who is proud of his good deeds and his spiritual attainments and his reputation and thinks that amounts to something, the counsel that he must be born again is the most insulting thing that he can hear. And only those who have the humility to bear this devastating news can make it into the kingdom of God. The commentator Linsky explains the impact of Jesus' counsel beautifully. Listen to what he says. Jesus' word regarding the new birth shatters once and for all every supposed excellence of man's attainment, all merit of human deeds, all prerogatives of natural birth or station. Spiritual birth is something one undergoes, not something he produces. As our efforts had nothing to do with our natural conception and birth, so regeneration or the new birth is not a work of ours. What a blow for Nicodemus. His being a Jew gave him no part in the kingdom. His being a Pharisee, being esteemed holier than other people, availed him nothing. His membership in the Sanhedrin and his fame as one of its scribes went for naught. This rabbi from Galilee calmly tells him that he is not yet in the kingdom Everything on which Nicodemus had built his hopes throughout a long and arduous life here sank into ruin and became a little worthless heap of ashes unless he attains this mysterious new birth. Even he shall not see the kingdom of God. And the same is true for all of us in this room, every person who wants to get into the kingdom of God needs to agree with Jesus and arrive at the same devastating conclusion, which leaves me with this question for each of you this morning. Have you been born again? Have you been born again? Jesus is going to say more in the verses to come that will help you to answer this question, and we're going to press further into this next Sunday, but let me give you some diagnostic questions that can get you started this morning. Do you receive Jesus' teaching in this passage that without being born again of the Spirit, you are spiritually blind and cannot see the kingdom of God as you ought? Do you see the kingdom of Christ as a beautiful and lovely thing that you would want to be a part of? Do you see the rule of Christ, the King, as something that you want to live under? Do you even now see his rule as more lovely and desirable than self-rule? Do you embrace the news 
that all your religious attainments and good deeds from birth onward count as nothing before God? And does it make sense to you as to why this is so? Do you embrace the fact that there is nothing you can do of your own to get yourself into the kingdom of God? Do you realize that at the bottom of it all, your salvation is not based on what you do, but upon something that Christ has done for you at the cross? And do you embrace the fact that you are utterly dependent upon the Spirit of God to bring you to life, to give you eyes to see, and to render you fit for the kingdom of God through the miracle of rebirth? If your answer to these questions is a growing yes, then that serves as a pretty good indication that you are born again. If your answer to those questions would have been no, but today for the very first time you feel as if you are ready to answer yes to these questions, then there's one simple thing for you to do. Embrace Jesus' teaching in our passage today and believe in his name and receive him as your Lord and Savior. Despairing of all hope of saving yourself, look to him, believe in him, and receive him. And by believing in him and receiving him in this way, you will thereby show that you have been born of God. How do I know this is true? Look back at John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, where John says in John 1, 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Those who believe in his name and receive him give evidence of the fact that they have been born of God. And if you're here this morning and you've already believed in Jesus and you've been saved through him, just know that you did not do that because you were smarter than other people. You believed in Jesus because God touched you and caused you to be born again, and enabled you to see as you ought to see. And so you and I should give him all the glory for the salvation he has accomplished in our lives, and take no credit unto ourselves. This being Mother's Day, I think it's worth pointing out to all of you parents that this passage gives you insight in how to pray for your children There are many things I am sure that you want for your children, but you should want this and pray for this above all else, and that is that your children would be born again of the Spirit of God. As you raise your children, hold God's righteous standard of the law high before your children so that they see God's holiness and they see their own spiritual poverty and point your children to Christ and pray that God will in his mercy reach down and touch the hearts of your children and cause them to be born again. Pray that God will show them their spiritual poverty 
and bring them to a point of despair of ever being able to save themselves and then to open their eyes to see the King, Jesus, whom they are ready to believe in and receive as their Lord and Savior. I know there's other things you want for your children and that I want for my children, but this is the mother load that contains an infinite amount of good for your children in this life and in the life to come. For if in the end your children have everything else that life affords, but they have not been born again, they will have nothing in the end. But if they have nothing else, but they have been born again of the Spirit of God, in this life and in the life to come, ultimately they will have everything. Amen? Let's pray and ask God to bring up our children in this way and pray for them. Lord, I just pray on behalf of any who are here this morning that have not yet believed and received you, Lord, I pray that you would just give them supernaturally the, the ability to receive the devastating news that Jesus so graciously makes known in this passage, that for them to be saved, they got to start all over. with a starting over that begins with being born again. And to be recipients of a salvation that ultimately you get all of the glory for, not them. And I so, Lord, would praise your name for all eternity if even in, in these moments you are touching hearts and causing this rebirth to happen in the hearts of some in this room and that you are drawing them to yourself and that they maybe for the first time are seeing as they ought to see and are so ready to believe in you, Lord Jesus. Help us as parents to... I know, I know Lord, that if, if you were to interview us all, we would say, yes, this is what we want more than anything else. We want our children to be born again. But then if, if we look at where our prayers lie and our passions and investments and the things that we're investing in on behalf of our children, sometimes our actions uh, indicate that there are other priorities that are higher than this. Lord, we just confess that to you and just pray that you would help us to be the, the moms and dads that you desire for us to be. We ask, Lord, that you would look upon our children with grace and mercy and do what only you can do and cause them to be born again that you would call out their name and call them to yourself and help us as parents to pray to this end and help us to serve this end, help us not to ever get in the way of your work and our children's life. 
Help us to play the role that you've called us to play as their mom and dad who you wish to use to point them to Jesus, whether they are young and in the home or older and out of the home. Help us as moms and dads to to serve this mission well, and we'll give you the praise and glory for the work that you do. Thank you for this passage, Lord, and for your goodness to all of us. We commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,